Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today, we are joined by my colleagues, Jen Acuna and Tom Stout, as we return to the Biden tax plan, this time to look at his proposal to increase individual taxes. A few weeks ago, we did an episode on the Biden proposal to raise the corporate tax rate. And in keeping with that and examination of rates, today I wanted to explore the proposal to raise the individual tax rate on ordinary income from 37% under current law to 39.6%. Now look, for a podcast with an entire series devoted to the Biden tax plan, it might seem a little bit odd to say this, but I think it's possible that we've undersold the importance of the tax plan to the Biden campaign. Yes, I know he doesn't have a discreet and formal tax plan like we are used to seeing, but if you watched Joe Biden's speech at the Democratic National Convention, as I did last night, you saw that he came back to taxes again and again. And if you're able to read between the lines of what he said, I heard him talk about his proposal to reinstate or reimagine the corporate AMT, to raise taxes on capital gains, and to generally raise taxes on the wealthy. So in asking the question of whether we should take these tax plans seriously, I'm convinced today that the answer is absolutely yes. So with that, let's touch on this topic of raising taxes on wealthy Americans and begin to think about what the direct and the indirect consequences might be. So Tom, let me give you the first question, which I think, by the way, is the same question I gave you when we were talking about raising the corporate tax rate when I asked you why 28%. And let's ask about 39.6%, not exactly a round number, where does that come from? <laughs> well, John, there's not a lot of mystery in it. It's the the, the pre-2017 rate. And, you know, as everyone will probably recall, there wasn't a Democrat in Congress who voted for the TCJA. So that makes going back to that 39.6% rate sort of a Democratic no-brainer, particularly when, as you say, the, the idea of higher taxes on the wealthy and addressing wealth inequality is, is something that's pretty high on the Democrats' agenda. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that you know, a 39.6% rate historically is not particularly high, given that we had during the 1940s, 1950s, the rate was 90% or thereabouts. Uh, it was 70% the top rate as recently as 1980, and indeed it was 50% until the 1986 uh, Tax Reform Act. Getting back to 396 is, is not, a, not a great leap. I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, one of the other things Biden's talked about is, is eliminating the cap on the on the payroll tax as well. So hitting the same general group. You're right, Tom. I mean, 39.6%, there is historical precedent for that, obviously. And relative to, as you said, historical rates, it's not really that high. And I wonder if, you know, when you look at some of the other Democratic candidates during the primaries, we're proposing things much higher. So there are other more dramatic proposals in the Biden tax plan that we will no doubt talk about. But this probably, just as an absolute number, isn't one of the more dramatic ones. So, Jen, let's just come back to you then, because whether it's a modest increase or not, when we talked about the Biden proposal to raise the corporate tax rate, I think one of the more interesting points that we all talked about how was just simply changing the rate had collateral effects all throughout the tax system on the corporate side. So let me ask you this question. Is that true here as well with the individual rate? What are some of the collateral consequences we should be thinking about in, in this context? You know, it's funny, and this is something that very few people link the individual rates with um, business income and business tax rates. 
but they are inextricably linked. And we saw that during the TCJA, right? Because we have such a huge swath of the U.S. population that functions in a pass-through entity form. And because of that, the regular individual rates have a fundamental impact on whether you would choose to operate as a sole proprietor or as a corporation. I mean, and people look at that rate differential. Of course, you know, corporations that have you know, two layers of tax, pass-through, single layer. So that accounts for some of that rate differential. But to suggest that, you know, you can increase an individual rate and that it is completely set aside from corporations, I mean, it's foolhardy because what we've learned is that, you know, pastors really do pay attention. When individual rates go up, there's rising concern that their burden, their tax burden is going up and it's going up a lot more than the corporate tax burden. So I feel like, you know, what we learned during the TCJA is that you cannot have a decrease or an increase in one or the other without considering both because, you know, you don't want to create a situation where you're pushing entity decisions in one direction or the other by, you know, by virtue of tax rates, right? It's just inefficient. So, such a good point. And you're right. I mean, we'll end up, I'm sure, talking a lot during the campaign about raising that rate. I wonder how much, how many people, you know, as, as we hear commentators anyway, talking about, we'll, we'll bring up that point. And so let me just check me on my math here on choice of entity that you sort of alluded to, you know, whether you want to be in pass-through form or corporate form. So pre-TCJA, we had 35% as the corporate rate and 39.6% as the top individual rate and for a 4.6% spread. But as you noted, the corporates have double taxation. So I think the math was yep. pretty easy there that there was a preference to go into pass-through form. And we saw this sort of mass erosion out of the corporate tax base and into flow-throughs, right? So then we come to post-TCJA, and we have a 21% corporate rate and 37% top rate for individuals. But it's not that simple because we also have 199A working in the background in terms of t lowering that spread. But as a general rule, you know, post-TCJA, we had a 16-point spread or less, depending on to what extent you could avail yourself of the special pass-through deduction of 199 cap A. So now we're into the Biden tax plan where it's 28% corporate rate and 39.6% on the corporate rate. And let's just assume no one in nine cap A. I know he would phase it out at $400,000, but let's just talk about, you know, for people making more than 400, that's 11.6%. So I guess it's kind of interesting. You know, I don't think we saw this big rush in the post-TCJA world for people to jump into corporations. People thought might happen as we got that bigger spread. And maybe it's because people weren't totally convinced that 21% corporate rate would stick. But it's an interesting question of what the world looks like in a Biden tax plan world of an 11 and a half, let's call it 11.5% spread between corporates and pass-throughs, presumably without 199 cap A. Is that a big enough spread to change behavior? And I guess your answer is, we don't know, but we'll have to see how that one would play out. And what we did see, um, especially, you know, with the lobbying efforts on 199 Cafe, and remember, you know, this is a couple of years ago, 199 Cafe wasn't the original plan. There was a pass-through rate that was proposed on the House side because there was a desire to make any corporate rate cut commensurate with the level of cuts that pass-throughs would get to reduce that rate differential. And now, just like as you pointed out, John, when you have a bigger spread, there's going to be a lot of political pressure to do something on on the path through end, either if it's through 199 CAFE or through another mechanism, like 199. Or I mean, there are a lot of different things you could do 
to try to reduce the tax burden on pastors. Right. Yeah. That you know the House plan, as you mentioned, sort of always made sense, which was this. It, from a pure policy point of view, right, let's have a special lower rate for pass-throughs to provide some sort of equity with the corporate rate reduction. The problem was it was so hard to write that that's why we sort of ended up with 199 Cafe, which was this special deduction that came out of the Senate plan that you helped put together. And whether or not you think 199 Cafe works or not, you understand why it, it's there, right? Okay, so Tom. Let's come back to you. So we've been talking a lot about this rate on ordinary income as a way for the Biden administration to raise taxes, especially on that sort of wage income. But is raising taxes on that income really only about the rate itself? Or are there other ways that a Biden administration could raise taxes without, you know, outside of simply the rate itself? Well, you, you mentioned one of them, the 199A deduction. If there's probably anything higher on the Democratic hit list than the top rate, it's the 199A deduction, which no, I don't think any of the Democrats favored in the first place. And you know, Biden's also talked about capping itemized deductions to benefit at 28%, which is uh, an old Democratic proposal that's out there. I think it's going to be interesting to see if he moves in that direction, what he does with the state and local tax deduction, whether that's reinstatement of that as part of it. But I think you know what's equally important is the flip side of Biden's tax proposals, which is, and this goes to the, the wealth inequality issue, tax changes that he's that he's proposed to cut taxes, uh, essentially, on the less affluent, doing things like increasing the child and dependent care credit and, and making those credits refundable. And, and then he has a whole other list of, of low-income credits for renters and for Affordable Care Act premiums and, and all sorts of things. And the thing that's interesting about that is not just the wealth inequality issue, but how it could affect the timing, because one of the concerns is going to be coming out of the, the economic downturn and the pandemic is going to be making tax changes that might adversely affect the economy. But a permanent change that, that increased the top rate, say, and got rid of the, the 199A deduction, coupled with these low income credits on, on a revenue neutral basis, you know, would probably be neutral or even even slightly positive in terms of the economic stimulus effect. So that could affect, you know, how quickly these changes might be made, particularly on the top rate. Very valid points all around. So point one, I think, was, yes, there are ways to raise taxes on wealthy individuals beyond just the rate itself. You mentioned, you know, we talked about the 199 cap A. There's this limitation on itemized deductions that you can cap those, you could always return to the brackets themselves, right? I mean, so the brackets are not set in stone, so you can move the bracket entry and exit points up and down to raise taxes in other ways as well. And also, very fair point, as we've been talking mostly about his proposals to raise taxes, let's not forget that the flip side of that is to, to raise money to do other things, whether that's to you know, as you said, there's the first-time home buyers benefit, and there are other things out there that are targeted, I think, at a different income point or bracket point than we're talking about on some of these tax increases. But for some people, there will be no doubt tax cuts. Right. Okay. So one of the things that Tom just sort of hinted at, Jan, let me come back to you on a prior episodes. We've talked about this too, which is how this Biden tax plan could get derailed, at least some parts of it, in a scenario where, you know, where the economy is still soft or in a recovery in 2021. So let's just talk about this particular proposal for a moment. The proposal to raise taxes on ordinary income. Does this still happen if we are in, in economic recovery? You know, it's funny because you would think conventional wisdom would suggest no. However, you know, there is a lot of pressure, um, especially with respect to the political pressure on those top rates. 
right? That during an economic depression, people feel like they're not doing as well as others. There's a general sense of, you know, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And there's going to be political pressure to increase rates on those, on the perceived winners. And that's why it's kind of counterintuitive. Because, yes, you don't raise as much revenue, but, you know, there is going to be that political push. I mean, that's one potential outcome. So it doesn't seem... and. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive with respect to, you know, the economy, because then you have, you know, more taxes and less money that is uh, going into the economy, less spending. But there's going to be some tension in the system because of that. So it's, you know, raising taxes is often about getting the money to spend elsewhere. But it's not always about that, right? Sometimes, you know, we think raising taxes as a means to an end. But sometimes it's just an end, right? And I think that's the point you're making, Jen, is that in this case, this is a big part, I think, of, you know, sort of the, the, what Biden is talking about in terms of fairness of the tax system. And I think, you know, sort of where you know, the Democratic voters are generally in terms of we need to undo pieces of the, the, what they're calling the Trump tax cut and just to, you know, restore fairness. Last question. Tom, let's assume this proposal does get enacted next year. Have to come back to our question on effective dates. What are the options? If somebody put together an option, said came to you, Tom, and said, "Okay, we want to do this. Thirty-nine point six percent on ordinary income. When should we make it effective? What are their options and some of the thoughts on those different options?" Well, a lot will depend on where the economy is at the time and and you know what it's coupled with. As I mentioned before, the you know the possible offset of, of having tax cuts for lower income individuals. But you know, it's it, keeping in mind that quite often tax rate changes that are enacted during a calendar year are often effective back to the first of that year, and that's generally the way it works. And the Supreme Court has upheld that kind of retroactive tax change in the past. That's pretty clear that that's the you know that's the the prevailing law. So you know, it it is possible. You know, we see a, a January one effective rate effective date change uh, on rates when it happens. All but depending, of course, on you know, the the results of the election and and who's in charge. And we've talked about that before. You know, without democratic control of both houses of Congress and the White House, uh, most of these changes are probably not going to happen. And one of the interesting thing with ordinary income is you just think about the behavioral effects here. So, you know, you talk about retroactively applied, a historical outlier, but not unheard of and not uh, unconstitutional, as you said. So that's a possibility. I mean, maybe not the most likely one in my view, but it's certainly a possibility. And we have to see how that plays out. Another possibility is the date of enactment. Whenever, you know, a President Biden would sign it into law, that would be our effective date. Mid-year is always a little clunky, right? Or there's... Um, you know, probably the most common scenario is you would do January 1 of the next year to try and make it clean. But when you think about those kind of things, especially on tax increases, you're always thinking about what kind of behavioral effects are there. And we'll get to this when we talk about the capital gains rate. There's all sorts of behavioral effects in picking a date. On wage income, though, I think it's a little more stable in terms of, you know, if we're thinking about purely wages, about when people recognize that income and whatever date you pick probably doesn't change the score as dramatically, the revenue raised as dramatically as some other proposals. But we can't rule out the possibility that at least there might be perceived anti-abuse provisions that they can put in retroactively that would prevent some sort of perceived abusive transaction to, you know, maybe accelerate income into that lower period and push deductions out into the higher period, which is the opposite of way, the way we typically think about it. But that would be the the, the planning technique, sort of planning 101 in, in a period of tax increases. Well, another consideration. 
Yeah, it's always a consideration, right? The revenue estimates matter in terms of, you know, they're not just numbers. I mean, they are just numbers, but they always matter in terms of how the legislation looks. And that's, again, but, you know, once you're in there actually writing these things, you never forget about how the revenue estimates really change, have a chance to change effective dates and the content of legislation itself. Well, that's all for this week. Look, we barely scratched the surface of the Biden tax plan so far. There is so much more to discuss, and we'll continue to take the plan apart in the coming weeks. But there is maybe nothing bigger on the individual side than Biden's proposal to increase the tax rate on capital gains. And today's discussion on ordinary income is really incomplete without that consideration in parallel. So I promise you, we will get to that topic soon. But until then, and until next time, thanks for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon.